Hello there. Welcome back to The Layman's Historian, Episode 52, The Fall of Carthage. In our previous episode, we covered the turbulent years which saw the explosive expansion of Rome across the Mediterranean. With her enemies in Greece and Syria defeated, she had turned her eyes once again on Carthage. Although the consuls for 149 BC, Manius Manilius and Lucius Marcius Censorinus, had exhibited unbounded confidence in their power during the negotiations with Carthage, they quickly proved inept as the siege began in earnest. As we discussed last time, the Romans, for all their virtus, experienced a dearth of quality in both the ranks and officer corps during the first half of the 2nd century BC, as shown most prominently by the costly disasters in Spain. This overall incompetence was likely compounded by the consul's mistaken belief that the Carthaginians, never famous for their own fighting prowess, would not really stand up to a full consular army in the end. They were quickly proven wrong. We have already covered the defenses of Carthage in a prior episode, but to recap, massive walls 30 feet wide and 50 to 60 feet tall ran a 20-mile circuit around the city. On the landward side, a triple line of defense, the above-mentioned walls followed by a timber palisade and a 60-foot-wide ditch, presented a formidable obstacle to any approaching army. Also, to correct a prior statement from one of my early episodes, Appian describes three sets of stone walls surrounding the city, but most archaeologists believe that he conflated the wall, palisade, and ditch described above into three separate fortifications. Even so, the main wall itself was formidable enough, with its two-storied compartments purportedly able to house 20,000 infantry, 4,000 cavalry, and 300 elephants, amid numerous stables and barracks. Although the Carthaginians had no professional army to fill these rooms, the citizens proved eager and willing to man the walls to meet the Roman invaders. On the Roman side for the Third Punic War, I used Appian's numbers of 80,000 foot and 4,000 horse, which would have been the largest Roman army to take the field since Cannae. While technically possible, many scholars placed the total at four legions instead of eight, which would produce around forty to 50,000 men. Unlike the Spanish campaigns, the consuls had no difficulty in filling the ranks. Promises of sacking a weakly defended city, fabled for its riches, and, as an added bonus, the historical boogeyman of the Roman people, proved far more alluring than the prospect of hard campaigning against fierce and cunning mountain tribesmen. Even using the lower figures, the final army would still have been significantly larger than the force Scipio Africanus had brought to Zama. Despite this advantage, the consuls failed to take the lessons learned from Scipio's campaigns to heart. Even though many of Scipio's men were veterans of the Spanish campaign against Hasdrubal Varca, he had still trained them for over a year in Sicily. By contrast, Manilius and Censorinus had only taken a few months to assemble their army. They further failed to stockpile grain in Sicily for the overseas campaign like Scipio had done, leading to a chronic shortage of supplies. Despite the defections of Phoenician cities like Utica, a 30,000-strong Carthaginian army under Hasdrubal the Bothark, recently reinstated after his public disgrace due to the debacle against the Numidians, proved effective in cutting off Roman foraging parties. 
the Carthaginians had been more skillful in disposing of their forces. One army had remained to defend the walls, while Hasdrubal had been sent out into the country along with a cavalry detachment under an officer named Himilco Phimaeus. At the capital itself, the consuls made three assaults against various sections of the walls, meeting determined resistance each time. Finally realizing that the situation demanded a proper siege, Censorinus constructed two massive battering rams, supposedly crewed by 6,000 men each. The legionaries manned one ram, while the rowers from the fleet worked the other, and, in their rivalry to be the first to break through the wall, two breaches were soon formed. The Carthaginian defenders managed to hold on until nightfall, but despite their frantic efforts through the night, they were unable to fully repair the breaches by morning. Thus, the legionaries swarmed through the gaps once again, this time to find a living wall of Carthaginian soldiers in front, while mobs of civilians showered the attackers with missiles from the rooftops above. The young tribune, Scipio Emilianus, refused to join in the headlong rush into the breach, instead keeping his men under tight control near the opening. When the attack began to falter and the Romans started to flee, Scipio fought a rearguard action to stem the Carthaginian pursuit and prevent his comrades from becoming trapped. His cool-headed action served as the only bright spot of the day. We have already met Scipio Emilianus in our last episode, when he volunteered to serve in the Celtiberian Wars, and later when he negotiated for elephants from Massinissa, the youngest son of Aemilius Paulus Macedonicus, who was the grim victor of Pigna, where Macedonian power was forever crushed. The teenage Scipio won renown when, presumed dead at the close of that battle, he returned covered in blood after pursuing the fleeing enemy far into the hills. Adopted by the son of Scipio Africanus due to a lack of male heirs among the Scipio family, Scipio Emilianus went on to distinguish himself not only by volunteering for the Spanish campaigns, but also by killing a Spanish champion in single combat. He presumably also learned the value of caution and discipline in the Iberian Wars, where guerrilla fighting and opportunities for ambush severely punished careless commanders. In the Third Punic War, Scipio would exhibit a remarkable degree of competence, prudence, and efficiency, which stood in all the more stark contrast when compared to the general haphazardness of his fellow officers. Disaster followed quickly upon disaster for the Romans, nearly all of which were self-imposed. Censorinus's camp near the lake soon became unhealthy, and with disease spreading, he retreated to a position near the sea. This proved no better, this time because the Carthaginians sent fireships among the Roman fleet when the wind was favorable. A sally from Carthage on Manilius's camp nearly proved fatal when, having bridged the camp ditch using beams and bundles of sticks, the Carthaginians scaled the palisade to the terror of the panicking troops. Once again, Scipio Emilianus saved the day by leading a counterattack with a group of Roman horsemen. Later, having failed to make any impression on the city, Manilius led a detachment of 10,000 footmen and 2,000 cavalry to raid the lands loyal to Carthage and gather supplies for the coming winter. Yet, as the Romans dispersed widely over the countryside, Himico Phimaeus cut off numerous small parties with his Numidian cavalry, causing heavy losses. 
The only bright spot was, unsurprisingly, Scipio's detachment, which gathered its required quota of food without significant casualties, due to Scipio holding a strong reserve and readiness to engage any attackers. Success breeds envy, and spiteful gossipers in the Roman camp claimed that Himilco avoided Scipio intentionally due to a bond of friendship between his ancestor and Africanus. Although this interesting anecdote implies that Himilco was of mixed Numidian and Punic blood, it did nothing to discredit Scipio in the eyes of the wider soldiery. A major assault on Hasdrubal's camp at Neferis would serve as the final failure of Manilius's tenure as consul. After a forced march, he ordered his weary and hungry legionaries to attack the well-entrenched Carthaginians. When they predictably faltered, Hasdrubal unleashed his soldiers in a devastating counterattack, which might have routed the entire army had not, you guessed it, Scipio led 300 cavalrymen in a series of controlled charges to check the Carthaginian advance and give the fleeing Romans time to ford a nearby stream. When four units of legionaries were surrounded on a hill, Scipio led his men on a daring rescue mission, which brought the stragglers off to safety. In true Hollywood fashion, he barely had enough time to gallop across the stream under a hail of missiles. Meanwhile, the dejected Manilius suffered a final disgrace when Himilco harassed the beaten Romans all the way back to Carthage. The first year of the war had ended in abject failure. Despite their initial high confidence, the Romans saw that sacking Carthage would be no easy task. In the report sent back to the Senate, Scipio's actions served as the only redeeming feature of the campaign but even these had been merely the prevention of greater disasters as opposed to advancing the siege itself. Still, when the news of his deeds arrived in Rome, even the grim Cato, famed enemy of Scipio's grandfather Africanus, quoted a line from the Odyssey, quote, Only he has wits, but the rest are fluttering shadows. End quote. This quote was one of Cato's last recorded acts, for he died soon after, in 149 BC. Another vestige from Hannibal's day, the old Numidian king Massinissa, would follow Cato to the grave in early 148 BC. As we discussed in the previous episode, his influence on Numidia had been profound, transforming it from a disordered region of warring tribes into a settled, powerful state which could compete with Carthage. The Greek historian Polybius writes that Massinissa was, quote, one of the best and most fortunate men of our time, reigned for over 60 years, enjoying excellent health and attaining a great age, for he lived till 90, end quote. Another wreath was added to Scipio's laurels when the king's will was read out, for it named Scipio as Massinissa's executor in recognition of the friendship between the old king and Africanus. Within two days, Scipio had arrived in the Numidian capital of Cirta, swiftly and efficiently settling the kingdom among three of Massinissa's numerous sons. He also convinced one of those sons, Gulussa, to join him with a force of Numidian cavalry, while at some point he simultaneously negotiated the defection of Himilco with his marauding band of 2,200 horsemen. When the campaigning season began in 148 BC, the newly arrived consul, Lucius Calpurnius Piso Cassaninus, 
decided to conquer the Punic cities which had remained loyal to Carthage, rather than focus on the capital itself. Despite his impressive-sounding name, Piso achieved little of note, sacking Neapolis but failing to take either Aspis or Hippo. Meanwhile, Scipio returned to Rome to present Himilco to the Senate, who showered the Punic deserter with honors, while praising Scipio to the skies. In the elections for the consulship in 148 BC, the people named Scipio as their first choice for consul. Despite his impressive record to date, he was only in his mid-thirties, several years below the minimum required age for the consulship. When the presiding consul pointed this out, a tribune of the plebs threatened to veto the entire election, forcing the Senate to make an exception. The law legislating the minimum ages was annulled and then immediately reenacted, allowing Scipio to win an easy electoral victory. When his consular colleague wished to draw lots to see who would receive the African campaign, the tribune and people again intervened, leaving Scipio in sole command of the siege. Of course, it is likely that Scipio had substantial support in the Senate in spite of the protests of the consul. He already had a remarkable service record, besides the fact that the Romans had a strong belief in inherited abilities within families. With a string of military reverses over the last few decades, the adopted grandson of Africanus alone seemed prime to finish the Carthaginian War. Meanwhile, back in Carthage, the general Hasdrubal had been busy consolidating his own power. Capitalizing on the exuberant mood, the city had, after all, withstood a full year of siege by what was supposed to be an irresistible war machine. Hasdrubal carefully removed his rivals by accusing them of treachery, and subsequently having them executed or lynched by a mob. Delegations were sent to Macedonia to enact an alliance with Andriscus, a Greek impostor who claimed to be a son of Perseus, the dethroned king of Macedon. Invading Greece with an army of Thracian tribesmen, he defeated a Roman force sent against him and seized much of Thessaly. Perhaps the tide of history was turning after all. Scipio's arrival in Africa quickly put an end to such romantic hopes. A Roman detachment under the fleet commander, Lucius Hostilius Mancinus, had managed to secure a foothold within the walls. However, they lacked adequate supplies and support from the main army, and, threatened with annihilation, sent urgent messages to ask for reinforcements. When Scipio heard the news at Utica, he released some Punic prisoners to herald his coming, and a few hours later, sailed into full view of Carthage's walls, with his ship's decks swarming with legionaries. The mere sight of this imposing host, coupled with the news that a new Scipio had landed to command, caused the Carthaginian attack to waver, enabling a triumphant Scipio to evacuate the beleaguered troops. Returning to the Roman camp, Scipio found his new quote-unquote army in a sorry state. Hastily raised and inadequately trained, the troops had deteriorated rapidly in morale and discipline under the successive failures and defeats. Many soldiers had degenerated into little more than armed bandits. Quarrels, brawls, and even bloodshed occurred frequently within the camp, while the numerous camp followers, merchants, prostitutes, and looters, added to the chaos. Expelling the latter from the camp, 
Scipio gave a scathing speech, stating that he would require every man to obey orders, deny luxuries, and work hard to progress the siege. Although the following quote from Plutarch comes from a later incident in Scipio's career during the Numantine War against the Celtiberians, his response in Africa likely mirrored his subsequent actions in Spain with a similarly recalcitrant army. Quote, when he arrived at the camp and found there much disorder, licentiousness, superstition, and luxury, he straightway drove out the soothsayers, diviners, and panders, and issued orders to send away all camp utensils except a pot, a spit, and an earthenware drinking cup. He forbade bathing, and of those who took a rub down, he required that each man should rub himself, saying that the pack animals, not being provided with hands, needed somebody to rub them. He also issued orders that they might recline at dinner, and this should be bread or porridge simply, and meat roasted or boiled. He himself went about with a black cloak pinned around him, saying that he was in mourning for the disgrace of the army. End quote. Unfortunately, with his limited time for operations, Scipio's reforms could only go so far. His namesake could afford to take months to train his men in Sicily. Instead, Scipio would have to make do with what he had, and he quickly decided that battle alone would forge his men into the fighting force needed to conquer Carthage. Two assaults were repulsed, but a third detachment managed to find a deserted tower near the wall. The legionaries managed to scale the tower and fling planks across where, after overpowering the guards, they opened the gates to Scipio and 4,000 Romans. Panic-stricken by the sight of enemies within the walls, the Carthaginian defenders fled towards the Bursa, leaving the Romans to pick their way in the dark through the orchards and gardens of the Megara. Despite this success, Scipio realized that he could not hold such an exposed position, and in the morning he withdrew to his camp. Hasdrubal, who had been thoroughly frightened as he watched his soldiers flee, ordered all Roman prisoners brought to the walls, where they were tortured in full sight of their comrades below, some having their eyes gouged out and tongues and fingers cut off, while others were thrown over the ramparts to their death. After these atrocities, Hasdrubal knew that the Romans would show no mercy, and that his fellow citizens should now expect none. When some members of the Council of 104 objected, Hasdrubal had them arrested and executed a savage display of how far the once-proud republic had fallen. With his direct assaults foiled, Scipio imposed a more severe blockade on the city. Burning his prior camp, he shifted his army further up the isthmus, building an extensive rampart 12 feet high to cut off the city on the landward side. Now supplies could only arrive by sea, and despite the superior Roman navy, a few ships still managed to run the blockade. Ancient navies rarely had the capacity to enforce a strict blockade due to the necessity of beaching their ships at night. Not that the supplies profited the average citizens of Carthage very much, since Appian claims that Hasdrubal, true to form, kept the food for himself and his 30,000 soldiers, holding profligate feasts while others starved. Faced with the problem of closing off the sea route, Scipio came up with the ingenious idea of building an artificial sandbar across the entrance to Carthage's harbor. At first, the Carthaginians scoffed at the plan, 
but as the mole relentlessly advanced across the strait, their laughter turned to fear. With no way to prevent the Romans from building, the Carthaginians determined to dig a new channel from the military harbor to the sea. Working with the utmost secrecy, the citizenry, including the women and children, dug diligently until they reached the sea. Meanwhile, another group built 50 triremes and other smaller craft from salvage and scrap material. Then, when all was ready, they threw open the entrance at dawn and, in the words of the historian Adrian Goldsworthy, quote, the last fleet of the Carthaginian Empire sailed out, end quote. Despite achieving total surprise over the Romans, who had no idea that the Carthaginians had been building a fleet, the new ships did not immediately attack the disorganized enemy navy. Instead, the next three days were spent preparing and training the crews in the harbor on how to man their ships. Only then did the Carthaginians give battle. A long struggle ensued near the shore in which the Carthaginian ships held their own, darting among the larger Roman vessels to ram and break oars. The battle lasted most of the day, and at dusk the Carthaginians withdrew towards the city. It was at this point that disaster struck. Whether due to the inexperience of the crews or the failure of the new channel, several ships collided with one another, blocking the small entrance and preventing the remainder of the fleet from gaining shelter. While others tried to clear this mess, the remaining ships docked at a nearby quay along the walls. When the Romans saw the Carthaginian fleet stuck outside the city, they rushed to capitalize on the enemy predicament. As they bore down on the Carthaginians, however, they discovered that, even though they could ram the anchored enemy ships, they exposed themselves to counter-ramming when they tried to extricate themselves by carefully rowing backwards. Appian claims that the Romans suffered heavy losses despite their superior numbers and position. The tide of battle only turned when a group of allied Greek sailors came up with the idea of dropping their anchors out at sea before ramming. The anchor rope, drawn taut by their rowing, would then yank them back stern foremost before the enemy could counterattack. Seeing the success of this tactic, the Romans quickly copied it, and by nightfall, only a few straggling ships regained the harbor out of Carthage's last fleet. Having beaten off this naval sally, Scipio had completed his blockade. While he could wait for starvation to do its ugly work, the consul had no intention of potentially losing the glory of capturing Carthage to a replacement. Using the mole across the harbor as a base, Scipio launched further attacks on the fortifications near the quay where the Carthaginian fleet had taken refuge, bringing rams and siege engines to bear on the walls. A brave sortie of defenders swam naked across the harbor with torches, setting fire to the siege equipment and sowing panic among the Romans. In another display of ill discipline, the troops fled from the camp, and when his efforts failed to rally them, an exasperated Scipio cut some of the routing men down with his own hands. In the following weeks, the Carthaginians strove to repair the wall, while the Romans continued to batter against it. Scipio ordered the construction of a brick wall of equal height to be built along the Roman line, which, once finished, allowed 4,000 legionaries to hurl missiles into the beleaguered city. Towards the close of 147 BC, 
Scipio also destroyed the last Carthaginian field army at Nepharis, removing the final external threat to Roman dominance in North Africa. The remaining Punic holdout cities in the region capitulated, leaving only the capital itself standing. Pleased with his progress, the Senate extended Scipio's imperium into 146 BC as a proconsul. In the spring, he renewed the attack from his base on the quay. Hasdrubal had burned the warehouses to clear the way for firing lines, but one of Scipio's lieutenants still managed to slip into the inner military harbor unseen. Capitalizing on this opportunity, Scipio led 4,000 men into the agora, or marketplace, next to the harbor. But in a shocking breach of discipline, the legionaries broke ranks to cut the gold from the local Temple of Apollo with their swords. This time, Scipio could do nothing to stem the pillaging, instead waiting until the men returned to arms. Fortunately for the Romans, the Carthaginians, weakened by fighting and hunger, were too feeble to counterattack by this point. According to Appian, who likely followed Polybius's eyewitness account, three main streets approximately 21 feet across led from the Agora to the Bursa. Apartment buildings allegedly six stories high flanked each steeply sloped road. Having returned to the standards, the Romans plunged up the streets, only to be immediately inundated with a barrage of missiles from the rooftops. The legionaries fought from house to house, clearing one floor by floor until, reaching the roof, they placed boards across to the neighboring rooftop and leapt across to clear the next house. The fighting was long, vicious, and costly. As the Romans surged more troops into the streets to continue the advance, Scipio ordered the burning of the buildings to clear access for further reinforcements. Appian gives a ghastly description again likely based on Polybius' own eyewitness testimony. The following quote is somewhat graphic, so I would recommend skipping ahead for the next two minutes, if you would prefer not to hear. Appian wrote as follows, quote, Then came new scenes of horror. As the fire spread and carried everything down, the soldiers did not wait to destroy the buildings little by little, but all in a heap. So the crashing grew louder and many corpses fell with the stones into the midst. Others were seen still living, especially old men, women, and young children who had hidden in the inmost nooks of the houses, some of them wounded, some more or less burned, and uttering piteous cries. Still others, thrust out and falling from such a height with the stones, timbers, and fire, were torn asunder in all shapes of horror, crushed and mangled. Nor was this the end of their miseries, for the street cleaners, who were removing the rubbish with axes, mattocks, and forks, and making the roads passable, tossed with these instruments the dead and the living together into holes in the ground, dragging them along like sticks and stones and turning them over with their iron tools. Trenches were filled with men, some who were thrown in head foremost with their legs sticking out of the ground, writhed a long time. Others fell with their feet downward and their heads above ground. Horses ran over them, crushing their faces and skulls, not purposely on the part of the riders, but in their headlong haste. Nor did the street cleaners do these things on purpose, but the tug of war, the glory of approaching victory, the rush of the soldiery, the orders of the officers, the blasts of the trumpets, tribunes, and centurions marching their cohorts hither and thither, altogether made everybody frantic and heedless of the spectacles under their eyes. End quote. 
For six days, the inhuman struggle continued, the Romans advancing inch by inch, the Carthaginians dying at their post. Scipio rotated his soldiers out to prevent them breaking under the strain and horror, but he himself toiled constantly without rest, taking his food while working, until at last even his energy gave out, and he sat upon a high hill overlooking the desolation. On the seventh day, a delegation from the Bursa arrived. The surviving Carthaginians had taken refuge in the temple of Asculapius, and the envoys begged that Scipio would accept their surrender in exchange for their lives. Scipio granted that all would be spared except for 900 Roman deserters. Upon hearing this news, these, along with Hasdrubal, his wife, and two children, retreated to the roof of the temple. According to Polybius, Hasdrubal had long boasted that he, quote, would never look at the same time on the sun and on his city being consumed by fire, for the most noble funeral for right-minded men was to perish in their native city and amid her flames, End quote. But now, cowering on the roof with his city burning beneath him, his courage failed him, and he slipped out to the Roman lines. A disgusted Scipio ordered him to sit at his feet. When the Roman deserters saw him there, they cursed him and set fire to the temple, determined to perish in the flames. In a moment of high drama, Hasdrubal's wife stepped forward, robed as a great lady and holding her little children in their smocks. When she called to Hasdrubal and received no reply, she, in the words of Polybius, quote, asked Hasdrubal how without saying a word to her, he had deserted them all and betaken himself to the Roman general to secure his own safety how he had thus shamelessly abandoned the state and the citizens who trusted in him and gone over secretly to the enemy, and how he had the face to sit now beside the enemy with suppliant bows in his hands. End quote. Appian adds a further flourish. Quote, Wretch, she exclaimed, traitor, most effeminate of men, this fire will entomb me and my children. Will you, the leader of great Carthage, decorate a Roman triumph? Ah, what punishment will you not receive from him at whose feet you are now sitting? End quote. So saying, she calmly slew her children, threw them into the fire, and, in imitation of Queen Dido seven centuries before, stepped into the consuming pyre. Moved by the scene, Scipio is said to have grasped Polybius's hand and exclaimed, quote, a glorious moment, Polybius, but I have a dread foreboding that some day the same doom will be pronounced on my own country. End quote. In the aftermath, Scipio let his men run riot through the city, saving only the spoils from the temples for the common distribution. Messengers were sent to Sicily announcing that if any city wished, it could come and reclaim the Greek statues and votive offerings which the Carthaginians had captured centuries before. 50,000 captives were sold into slavery, and a senatorial commission soon arrived to supervise the systematic destruction of what was left of Rome's hated rival. Carthage's libraries were donated to the Numidian king, with only Mago's book on agriculture being deemed worthy to add to Rome's collection. A curse was placed on anyone who dared rebuild the city. The famous story of sowing the ground with salt, quote-unquote, 
but archaeological evidence has largely confirmed the near total destruction of Carthage. The later Roman city near the same spot might bear the name, but it had almost nothing in common with the great empire of Hannibal Barca. Scipio would return to Rome to celebrate a magnificent triumph. He would take the surname Africanus like his great ancestor and enjoy a starry political career. As an old man, his talents would once again be called upon for the grim Numantine War in 134 BC, where he would preside over another brutal siege at the Celtiberian stronghold of Numantia. The young men who fought under him, Tiberius Gracchus, Gaius Marius, and Jugurtha, would convulse Rome in the coming century of civil war, which would culminate in the destruction of the Republic and the rise of the emperors. In the same year as the destruction of Carthage, 146 BC, Rome would destroy another ancient city, this time Corinth on the Peloponnese. A bout of political infighting led to a Roman siege which leveled the city, despoiling her of priceless works of art and selling her population into slavery. This and the siege of Carthage marked a new era in Roman expansionism. No longer content with allies, puppet states, and tributaries, Rome crushed opposition under a relentless heel, annexing Carthage as the province of Africa and Greece as that of Macedonia. Roman governors appointed by decree of the Senate would directly rule the conquered peoples. The Roman Empire had come of age. As for Carthage, the proud civilization which had begun with Dido's oxides in 825 BC ended on that fiery day in 146 BC. Famed for their trade, fleets, and wealth, the Carthaginians had proved themselves heroic in the end, resisting the overwhelming force brought to bear against their city for three years, defending themselves with skillful sallies and counterattacks, showing ingenuity in cutting the sea channel and outfitting one last fleet. The Romans only overcame them after starvation had wrought havoc among the defenders, and even then, it required mighty walls and siege works to breach the defenses. As Adrian Goldsworthy puts it, quote, When the very existence of their city was under threat, the Carthaginians fought long and hard before famine forced their capitulation. The main difference between the two sides throughout the wars was that the Romans had always fought as if this were the case. End quote. Ironically enough, Carthage's final moments seem appropriately captured in the words of the man who destroyed her, Scipio Aemilianus. From Appian, quote, Scipio, beholding this city, which had flourished 700 years from its foundation, and had ruled over so many lands, islands, and seas, rich with arms and fleets, elephants and money, equal to the mightiest monarchies, but far surpassing them in bravery and high spirit, since without ships or arms, and in the face of famine, it had sustained continuous war for three years, now come to its end in total destruction. Scipio, beholding this spectacle, is said to have shed tears and publicly lamented the fortune of the enemy. After meditating by himself a long time and reflecting on the rise and fall of cities, nations, and empires, as well as of individuals, upon the fate of Troy, that once proud city, 
upon that of the Assyrians, the Medes, and the Persians, greatest of all, and later the splendid Macedonian Empire. Either voluntarily or otherwise, the words of the poet escaped his lips. The day shall come in which our sacred Troy and Priam and the people over whom spear-bearing Priam rules shall perish all. End quote. Carthage had been destroyed, but her memory would live on long after in the Roman world. Next time, we will take one last look at Carthage. Until then, take care and read more history. <laughs>